So within literally three days, I kid you not, we changed all of our policies, we updated our product, and we went from zero meetup events in our first 19 years to we've had now over 300,000 uh, meetup events just in the last six weeks and over 3 million uh, people who have been attending um, th those events. And it's, it, it literally happened overnight. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's great to have you here, as usual. I hope you're all doing well. Quick reminder, my new book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams, is out right now. Go and check it out. It just won an award, people. Oh, yeah. So, um, but anyway, let's get on to today's discussion. I am really thrilled to have David Siegel on the show, who is the CEO of Meetup.com. How are you doing, David? Life is good. Ah, it's always good. Well, sometimes it's less good, but... I'm glad that life is good. Uh, so before we get into it, let me go through the rap sheet because you've had a really interesting career. So, you know, you were, I'm not going to go through everything because you've done a lot, uh, but you're a direct, director of organizational development at, at DoubleClick back in the day. Remember DoubleClick? Um, and then <laughs> went on to be uh, a consultant at Deloitte. Um, and then you, you went on to be a, a senior VP of strategy and corporate development at 1-800-Flowers, which I think is kind of an interesting shift forward. You then went on to Everyday Health. You were a, a president at Seeking Alpha, uh, where you were reporting into the founder and the, C, uh, and, and the CEO there. Uh, you've also been an adjunct professor in management at Pace University. And then that led you on to uh, being the, the the CEO. Well, actually, this was previously you were the CEO of Investopedia, which many people who listen to this will be very familiar with. Um, and then a couple of years ago, you came to, to meetup.com as the CEO. Um, it sounds like you've had one hell of an interesting journey so far. <laughs> yeah, but I haven't award won any awards like you, and I, and I haven't read any <laughs> books, so... <laughs> I should be interviewing you. I mean, uh, oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all you do this is a trick, right? You just you pay people to give you awards. That's actually that's not true. Um, so <laughs> it's a complete it's trick. a complete fake. <laughs> that's the trick. No, you pay people to write books. You pay people to give you the awards. Sold. Okay. No, uh, I wrote the book and I got the words. So anyway, so <laughs> what? Are, there's so much. I think there's so much for us to talk about because um, as we record this, we're in the midst of this COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, and um, you know people have been have been sheltering in place all over the world, and you know this is, has got to have had a pretty profound impact on Meetup.com. But before we get into the 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 COVID side of things, obviously Meetup has had a bit of a storied history. It's become kind of the brand that everybody thinks about when it comes to people getting together to organize groups, to, to, to meet, to network, to share information and ideas. In your couple of years at Meetup as CEO, how have you seen the organization change? What's, what's, what's been most top of mind for you in that, in that progression? Yeah, sure. So maybe in talking about change, it's always good to start with kind of our founding and then, and then bring us to, bring us to where we are now relative where to- Where we are right now. Yeah, exactly. It. So as some people know, but not everyone, Meetup was founded directly after 9-11 in 2001, when our founder, right. Scott, Scott Heiferman, had, had, had really seen the, the, the need 
the dire need for community by especially people in New York City, but all around the country and people to kind of help each other and support each other. And he lived in an apartment building where no one knew each other and it was your typical type of apartment building and people kept to themselves. And then suddenly for the first time, everyone was was talking to each other and helping each other out. And, and his thought was, we shouldn't need crisis to get to build community. How yeah. do we build community out of crisis? And it's, you know, fast forward close to 20 years later, we're in a very different crisis with uh, with the coronavirus. And yeah. the need for community is, is frankly, I would say far stronger than it's ever been. And and when we get back out, it's, it's going to continue to be strong. Um, but to get, obviously, as you said, we could talk about that afterwards. Right. In terms of meetups specifically, you know, we have 50 million members worldwide in, in 190 different countries um, all around the world. Um, and we have 330,000 groups. Um, and, you know, we were kind of Internet 1.0. We were one of the real first well-known um, Internet yeah. companies. And there's been thousands, if not tens of thousands of businesses and entrepreneurs um, who have met their partners, individuals who have met their spouses um, through the myriad of different different meetup events, everything from tech to hiking and 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 everything, everything kind of personal yeah. and professional in between. Um, over the last two years, when I joined WeWork, which is a company I'm sure no, none of your listeners have ever heard of, oh, none of them yeah. at all. They've kind of faded into some kind of obscurity. Never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, WeWork had acquired, um, had acquired Meetup and um, the founder of, well-known founder of WeWork, um, Adam Newman, mm. had, had, had the, original, the original basis for that acquisition, which is probably worthwhile to share because it was a little over two years ago, was WeWork wanted to build community as a real point of differentiation in its hundreds of buildings around the world. And they said, what right. company is better at com building community, whether it's personal or professional, than Meetup? Um, he and Scott got to know each other. And then ultimately, around four to six months after that acquisition, um, they made the decision, uh, I think, together that um, they wanted to um, bring in a, a, a CEO who, who had um, a, a myriad of different experiences from the past to, to help to really um, accelerate growth. Scott and I have a wonderful partnership. We actually just spoke last week um, and it's, and he's a, a true inspiration to me. And it's, we're really yeah. lucky to many CEOs don't have relationships with their founders. And I think that's unfortunate because founders bring the heart and soul of a company and, and, and you want to maintain that, that mission orientation. I would say mm. that meetup had always been focused on, on a mission um, in the past, and and we continue to be focused on on mission. The the question was, how can the company um, focus on fewer things and be better positioned to be able to succeed? Because meetup means so many different things to so many different people, and as long as we're trying to um, meet the needs of every single one of those groups that are out there, it makes it increasingly more difficult to be able to have the kind of impact that we ultimately want to have. Um, right. And I would say that's that coupled with now being independent. So, so meetup separated from WeWork 
a couple of months ago after a seven-month fairly grueling sales process. Um, right. To take it back a step, when you mentioned that I was an early employee of DoubleClick, I reached out to the DoubleClick CEO, Kevin Ryan, um, and he's the person that ended up acquiring Meetup because of our 22-year-long relationship. So it's amazing how things go full circle when you're, when you're old enough, like, uh, like I am at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... It seems to make perfect sense as well from the perspective of WeWork. Like, why wouldn't you acquire kind of the ecosystem leader, right? Like, to your point, like every, anyone who was organizing, uh, anyone who was organizing meetups was using meetup.com uh, to, to, to a reasonable extent. Um, how have you seen um, the, kind of that relationship adjust in recent years? Because um, I would argue that the, the meetup phenomenon has exploded, right? It's become a very... Uh, critical part of how people are building businesses. Uh, people are not just hiring community managers to go out to meetups, but actively salespeople are going out, marketing people are going out, product people are going out, they're coordinating their own meetups. Have you seen that kind of that growth continue or have you seen the appetite for meetups change at all in recent years? Yeah, the biggest change has actually been on the corporate side. So the the area of the business that's growing the fastest, we have a, a 55 0% growth rate on our corporate business. So that means companies like Google saying, how do we build community relationships with a thousand developer groups all around the world and, and, and have developers um, host events under Google's brand or AWS or Microsoft? So the, probably the biggest growth area is companies that want to build community manager um, infrastructure. And I would say just like every company now has social media managers and they didn't 10 or 15 years ago, in the future, every company is going to have community managers. Many do now. All companies are going to because they'll see the value of that. And and they partner with us so that they could um, build their brand um, either for um, building business, so lead generation to to grow business, uh, salespeople we use it, use it for, um, to um, yep. to um, for marketing purposes or for recruiting purposes, many many companies will tend to use for, for. So I think you're absolutely right. Probably that that's been the biggest change. The other one is just post WeWork. We were very focused when we were part of WeWork of how can Meetup help WeWork to drive community at WeWorks, but we'd rather focus on how can we help our organizers to have amazing experiences and bring members um, into their meetup groups and have members find the best possible events and groups to be able to join. So being able to be kind of outside of WeWork enables us to get back to focusing on kind of our core, our members and our organizers, um, as opposed to necessarily serving kind of our parent company. So that's also been a positive for us. Yeah, that's incredible. So how, uh, you know, it, this is the, the obvious next kind of topic to get into is um, is, is, is the impact of COVID. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's been interesting. Um, um, I mean, there's so much, there's so much meat on this particular bone, but one of the things I'm seeing is people are uh, talking more and more about virtual events, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's great to see like a whole load of innovation going on with virtual events. Like there are, I think there are people who are taking a more straightforward approach. So, for example, GitHub ran GitHub Satellite a couple of weeks ago um, as we record this. And, you know, it was two streams of content and then some discussion. It was fairly simple, but it was hugely successful because high quality content and people love going there. But then I've seen other people who are 
coordinating, you know, keynote rooms and then having breakout sessions. Uh, there was a, a, a an event called Open Source 101 that a friend of mine, Todd Lewis, runs, who actually was the first person I ever interviewed on this podcast. And they used um, a platform called Hopin where, you know, mm. there's a main stage and then there's uh, a networking area and there's kind of a virtual booth kind of area. Um, what have you been seeing and what has your team been seeing when it comes to this changing way in which people are kind of getting together? Is are there any particular insights that you can share that, that have been particularly interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many. Um, meetup, for Meetup, in-person was religion, was religion yeah. for the company. It was religion. And when everything started happening, and we actually had a case of COVID in our office, and we were one of the first companies to vacate our corporate office in, in very early March, actually. And, and, and we said, oh my God, we're meet up and we're not even meeting up as a company and, and in person and everything went virtual for us very quickly. Um, mm. For 19 years, we basically didn't allow or, 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 or really look down upon purely online only type interactions um, because of kind of our, our core belief of the power of in person. But then we took a step back and we said, the goal is not in person. The goal is human connections. The goal right. is to keep connected. The vehicle for how we believe the best way to achieve human connections is, is in person. And we, of course, still believe that. But yeah. when you can't, something far more important than human connections is safety. And we need to do something extremely quickly. So within literally three days, I kid you not, we changed all of our policies. We changed our entire customer service team. We updated our product to, uh, in a host of different ways to allow for video conferencing, the ability for members to find find video conferencing. And we went from zero meetups in our first meetup events in our first 19 years to we've had now over 300,000 uh, meetup events just in the last six weeks, and over three million uh, people who have been attending. Um, th those events, and it's it, it literally happened overnight. And there's, ha wow. I'm happy to share lots of different observations, learnings, mm. experiences. But uh, and I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. I'll pause. But and, and literally <laughs> in 193 different countries. But do, do you want me to start sharing opportunities? And experiences yeah, so or do you want me to pause. I think I'd like I think I'd like to get into two areas here because I, I'd love to first of all get into those learnings. But what I'd also love to understand a little bit is. You know, I think a lot of businesses who have seen this crisis happen, especially who are in a similar space to yourselves, are, okay, how do we adapt as quickly and as effectively as possible, right? So a good example of that is Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've become the poster child of online video conferencing. Uh, their brand has grown significantly. And I can only imagine the mad dash internally to be able to adapt their technology and their website and their marketing and all the rest of it to to serve that new need. And I'd love to get into that afterwards when it comes to meetup.com and how you've managed that as a CEO. But yeah, why don't you share with us some of the things that you've discovered in this process? Okay, sure. So the first is that many, there's, there's obvious um, categories that make a ton of sense to be able to transition to virtual slash online. The most obvious right. of which is like tech. So if you're a tech group, where already the individuals are, are comfortable from a technology standpoint, um, the ability, and you have a speaker or you have a panel, 
um, the ability to move that to, to an online virtual world is relatively seamless. And crazy enough, we have now more RSVPs specifically in the U.S. in tech than we had prior to to coronavirus. So that's kind interesting. of an interesting point. Yeah, However, that is interesting. You have other groups. You have running groups, hiking groups. So what do they do? So what's been super fascinating to me is to see how groups that um, the thirst for community is so great. I'll give you an example. So there's a, mm. a, a running group. Um, they set us a, a, a running uh, a running plan on, on on Strava or some other third party app. They encourage their people to to do that run in, in different times or do, do different runs. And then they all set a time to get back together and have a beer together and talk about the, the, the run that the, the run that they happen to have done in the area. Right, right. So they're separate, but they're still being able to kind of get to know each other, share notes, discuss how their runs went, all of that kind of stuff. Exactly, exactly. So they're keeping the elements of community, which is so important, which is the ability to interact with each other, learn from each other. Um, build relationships with each other, and they're doing that in a virtual way, even if the actual event can't happen. So we, hmm. we've been challenging all different types of groups to say, okay, here are some examples of ways in which you could think more broadly about how to enable success, whether it's going on, whether it's a social group, and we have, you know, tens of thousands of them. I just actually participated in one yesterday, or not yesterday, a couple of days ago, um, that now runs a scavenger hunt. And they do it virtually and they have to find the white dog and the yellow flowers and whatever it is all around. Um, and they're and they're kind of doing it in a in a fun type of way outside and then getting back together and talking about it, you know, from from a social perspective. Um, right. Or so. So that's that's been really interesting seeing hmm. how groups have been able to modify to make in-person type of work. The other one that I would I would really kind of. Um, support, which has been really interesting, which is we have also tens of thousands of support groups, um, um, right. individuals, God, for, you know, with 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 breast cancer or parents of children with diabetes or ADHD, and what mm. we're actually seeing now is that when in person was the only way for us, then if you were a parent of children with ADHD and lived in remote Toronto somewhere, well, there wasn't a parent mm. of children with ADHD there, but there. But but now that person who's an, who's you know an employee at Meetup for who, who, who literally just told me about this is now able to participate in a support group and have a community and geography is not um, is not as it, it, geography is not uh, a, a, a does not disallow his ability to be able right. to you know build and, and gain support and learn um, that as as much as it had in the past. And that's kind of it's, a it's, wonderful thing. I think that's awesome. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, I mentioned earlier on, you know, the uh, this Open Source 101 virtual event that went on. And this was ordinarily going to be an in-person uh, conference, essentially, a relatively small conference uh, that was going to happen in Austin. And Todd mentioned that they had over a thousand people register for the event, which is way more than would have ever shown up in Austin. And even given the fact that usually with free events, and this wasn't a free event, but with free events, about 30% of people tend to show up, such as with webinars. Even when you take that into account, you often attract much larger audiences, right? But that's got to be a blessing and a curse for a meetup where so much of the value of the meetup is standing around 
having, you know, a soda or a beer with somebody and a piece of pizza and having these little uh, intimate conversations with people, uh, but transitioning that to an electronic setting. How do you feel like the organizers have been able to kind of react to this? Because they may have more people showing up, but that sometimes might make the actual communication and the, the collaboration element a little bit more complicated. Yeah, so I, you're, you totally hit the ha- nail on the head, which is it is a blessing and a curse for us. So one one technology that I found to be pretty interesting, and it's it's pr- fairly new, and I hate plugging groups, but but um, it's oh, called Icebreaker. Yeah, it's called Icebreaker. It has nothing to do with Meetup, but I've been impressed with them. Um, what they do is, it, uh, and many of our organizers are increasingly using using Icebreaker. Um, it, it allows in the beginning of a, let's say you had 50 to 100 people show up. Well, you can't run a way to get 50 to 100 people to get to know each other. It doesn't work. It's, it doesn't, you know, in, in a real setting, people break up into, into twos and threes. So um, many tech uh, organizers and other organizers, frankly, are using this um, capability and it's free. Um, right. to, to get people just, you know, there's a, a question will be asked like, what, what's your favorite dessert? What do you, what do you like doing in your weekend? Whatever it is. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. It, it enables people to right in the beginning of an event to build a one-on-one type relationship, um, with people. And then it lasts for three minutes and then they get another person one-on-one. It's a little bit mm. of, it's not speed dating, obviously, but it's, it's, it's speed getting to know you in a, in a, in a yeah. virtual setting where you don't know who you're going to necessarily end up with. That's been a yeah. really positive feature. The other one is just the breakout groups within zoom in particular are really important. And oh, any order- yeah, organizers really need to figure out how to take advantage of, of, of different zoom capabilities. We actually ran a, a session for organizers um, on uh, something that we have called Meetup Live, and and there were and it was ridiculous. We had like six thousand people join a session from kind of Zoom's head trainer on all the different bells and whistles and best practices of how to kind of most leverage leverage Zoom. And I think if you're a community manager, if you're an organizer, if you're a company, really making sure that you know all the different features of Zoom or other solutions that are out there, like like you said, you gave the example of because I actually use them too. Um, starts with an H. What was the example you gave? Oh, Hopin. Hopin, yeah, I've used Hopin yeah. as well. And there's Blue Jeans, and there's IBM WebEx, yeah. and there's a whole host of different different other services, and Twitch, and and others. Um, um, so so what I would say there is finding the right solution to enable one on one or small group conversations in the beginning of events it ensures that the personal touch which is what you hit on so well is right. is maintained because it, without that you lose just so much yeah well, and that's the thing that i think is <clears throat> is so interesting at looking at this story is you know um i think one of the reasons why why meetups work so well is that when you go to the event it's very similar in my mind to a little bit like when you have a party at your house. You know, when people first get there, it's really awkward and uncomfortable for most people, especially <laughs> if you don't know anyone. And you put your little badge on and you grab your little plastic cup and pour some wine in it. Um, but then what happens is usually there'll be the, the the host or the organizer will connect people together. And once they get like two people connected and they start having a conversation, so that's good. Then they'll go and connect two other people together. And before you know it, within half an hour, everybody's kind of getting to know each other. People are loosening up a little bit. And that's really difficult to do in, a, in an online setting, especially when you've got 
a hundred people all dialed into the same Zoom uh, session, yeah. <clears throat> I would argue that at beyond you know, 10 people, people start getting uh, pretty reluctant to kind of interrupt the flow of the conversation and, and say their piece, particularly as there's always lags. Those breakout uh, groups that you mentioned that Zoom have integrated are so, so important. I go on to like, a, there's a marketing group that I join every week mm-hmm. and, and they break people out for about five minutes. And it's mm-hmm. a great way of meeting new people. Um, yeah, so. it's also it's also great for just uh, from a work from from a work standpoint when when Meetup uses it uses it um, from a, from a work standpoint as as well. Um, I'll tell you, for us, it we're it's not as quote unquote challenging as for big conference businesses. The average size of a Meetup, by the way, is only ten people. It's actually nine and a half people. So really, yeah, yeah. Now, wow. Now Meetups that you speak at probably have hundreds and hundreds of people at them oh usually thousands <laughs> actually it's it's, it's generally in the thousands sometimes tens of thousands <laughs> tens uh, of thousands so so oh, you know yeah. you of course have a skewed <laughs> have, a, have a skewed perspective but 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 actually the literally the average number of people is 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 nine to ten people so because so we've always believed that one of the most exciting things that people love is when you could find someone that has that very specific niche interest of yours. And you didn't know that other people had that very specific thing of, I'm very interested. I live in Kansas City and I'm super interested in binary options trading. Um, yes. And you know, it's, it's like a very specific thing. You could find people that want to talk about like tech or business intelligence or machine learning, like big, broad stuff. And there's other places for that. But the magic for us happens so much more when there's, a, a very specific use case and the, we call it the long tail, you know, the long, long, long tail of right. very niche um, specific topics. And because of that, our average size per group is nine to 10. So that is not, you know, virtual is less disruptive, shall we say, as yeah. you said, for the, for the groups of nine to 10. And for many of them, our sh- people are showing up um, on much higher rates than they ever had mostly because there's nothing else to do <laughs> but, but also because it's a lot easier to kind of show up when it's when it's when it's, when it's online than oh um i need to get home for xyz well you're already home everyone's already home so right um i i totally i totally get that um because you know just speaking personally there's a ton of meetups happening in san francisco and i don't go to most of them because frankly we live 35 minutes out of san francisco and Look, I can go in, but I don't particularly want to drive. I've got to take BART. You know, it's, it's a hassle getting in there. So I'll tend to go to the ones where I know it's going to be super valuable and it's going to be super interesting. But the idea of just showing up and, you know, casually wandering in, I think if you live near the venue, <laughs> that's very doable. But I can imagine there's a lot of people, like if you live in the middle of nowhere, your world has opened up, right? Uh, because you can go and join all of these virtual events. That's interesting that it, the average size is around ten people. Like, yeah, because I wasn't. I think part of it is you know to a degree like a lot of the events that I go to, they tend to be forty or fifty people um, because they tend to be tech events and they're usually kind of uh, popular topics. I guess it's like the Queen thinks everywhere smells like fresh paint, you know, <laughs> because they <laughs> repaint it. So. I love it. I love it. Yeah, tech events tend to be on average of sixteen. Which is a lot smaller than fifty, but but non-tech yeah. events are, are are again that that nine or so range. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's been an interesting dynamic happening actually, in that so a, 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 an employee's wife runs a meetup group on a like 
philosophy cafe where people sit around mm. drinking coffee together and talking philosophy. And they had to move cool. that to online. And they moved it to online. And they always met as a local group. And somehow someone from Chicago, whatever, found out about it. That person joined. And the person from Chicago was like, this is awesome. I'm now going to start a philosophy cafe group in my town as well. So right. what's been interesting is that um, being virtual gives people, like you said, exposure to so many different types of groups than they didn't have exposure to before. And that's causing some people to then decide that they want to create those groups in their local communities, especially as we, you know, get back out um, when it's safe to do so, you know, in, in, yeah. different, in different geographies. Yeah, no, very interesting. Very interesting. So g switching gears a little bit, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'd love to kind of get into just internally how meetup.com has reacted to this and being able to understand and manage this and and and, and make changes. One of the things, um, and this is going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but I promise you it isn't. Uh, but when we first met, you reached out to me via LinkedIn. And I think it was after I wrote the HBR article in Community. And yeah. we were going to be in San Francisco. This was just before COVID kicked off, mm -hmm. before it really kind of hit. And we met up in San Francisco. And one of the things that really ast astonished me about that meeting was, I'll never forget this. We walked in, we sat down, drinking a coffee, and you said, tell me what we're doing wrong. <laughs> that that was the first thing you said. And what I love about that is usually like when you meet with CEOs of of even like small startups, let alone, you know, really well-known brands like Meetup, there's a certain element of posturing going on. There's a certain element of like, I'm here to teach you. And you turn that on its on it on its head and you're like, what are we doing wrong? Like, what should we be focusing on? What what should our future look like? And I can imagine that. First of all, that's the right mentality I think CEOs need to have in a business. But secondly, I can imagine that you've been having very similar conversations with your staff in saying, okay, how do we react to this? What, what, what are the changes that we make where the world is becoming more virtual, where a lot of people can't meet in person? How have you handled all of this kind of going down? First of all, thank you for the smoke. As soon as you started, I, I pulled in all my kids to be able to listen to them actually hearing something positive about their father. Uh, my, my teenage kids were, were, were shocked to hear it. So uh, <laughs> They're like, is this fake news, Dad? <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly, Dad. Um, so so that's very kind of you to, to, to remember that. And oh, that, of course. that does mean a lot. It's, I think, you know, a very a well-known New York mayor, uh, his name is Ed Koch. He passed away. I don't know three, five years ago. Was famous right. for walking the walking around the New York subway systems and saying, "How am I doing? How am I doing?" Walking to homeless people and everyday regular people and just always asking, "How are you doing?" Cool. And, and I think uh, I think it's a it's I love a, it. It's a it's a good message for kind of leadership generally. Um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think. Thank you for, for saying it. I, I think there has been a lot of uh, excuse the expression, "come to Jesus" type. Uh, yeah. Type moments um, for Meetup in that, you know, it's when you have a extremely strong mission that's fully focused on in person, there is an incredible mm. fear of losing your heart and soul and becoming like another Facebook or, or, or LinkedIn, whatever. Not that those are bad companies. They're wonderful companies. They're amazing companies. They're just different than, 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 than Meetup. So yeah, because yeah. of that, what you end up doing is holding on to what you stand for and therefore not being willing 
to think potentially more broadly about how you can accomplish your larger mission of having you know a billion meetups meetup events in this world and having really every person in the world be happier frankly because of those human connections that we're able to build and that mm. plagued us for for a, a period of a long period of time so to your question and your point this gave us permission shall we say to for the mm. first time have conversations that wouldn't result in our employee population our leadership, our board, kind of all saying to us, you're going to lose what you stand for. And right. we, we were scared of having those conversations in the past. And this yeah. forced us to have those. So, uh, so for example, if, if you're a, uh, let's, uh, a global brand uh, or you're an individual, uh, uh, Jono, you, how about this? You're Jono. How about that? Yep. And you just wrote, <laughs> imagine that you just wrote an award-winning book. You know, for, for, for argument's sake. And, Fifty and Shades of Bacon. Yeah, Fifty Shades of Bacon. Perfect. So imagine right. if, so so imagine you just wrote this award winning book and and you wanted to build build your your presence and your and your personal brand. Now, previously it at the way that it worked within Meetup is you would be able to leverage like a local community group. To be able to build yeah. that, you have to have lots of different local community groups around the world, around Fifty Shades of Bacon, um, yeah. or or Six Degrees of Separation from the real the real bacon, not that fake bacon, <laughs> Kevin over there. You know, yeah, you such a Come what on. a pasta. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, you want to be so so. And now with with the embracing of virtual, kind of gives an organizer a global footprint to be able to build those types of relationships and communities that they didn't necessarily mm. have, have the opportunity to, to do beforehand. Or, you know, if you're obsessed with um, Pez dispensers, whatever the heck you're, you're obsessed with, and there's literally no one else <laughs> in your area that's obsessed with Pez dispensers. I say that because we all know the story of how eBay got it, got its start was all through, right. through Pez dispensers. Yeah. Then, then now you could find that person in Guadalajara or in like, you know, Slovenia, that also has that similar, similar obsession. And so I think the answer is, is we really thought as a management team, let's understand that the goal is about helping to connect people and, yes. as, yeah. and build real relationships between people as opposed to kind of the digital, you know, people liking things and becoming friends with people on you know, on, on Facebook or Instagram or, 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 or whatever, which is kind of bullshit friends. Um, yeah. so it, it led to a lot of kind of soul searching and it gave us tremendous permission to be able to do things and courage to do things we never would have done before. Hmm. And that is, I, I, this is one of the things I find really interesting about, <clears throat> about business is people it, it, you read any business literature, any business book, and it always talks about being, you know, being re reactive to feedback and being agile and listening to your customers. But that's really hard to do in in, in real life, especially when you've got, um, I think a brand meetup. I think is a good example of this. You don't just have a brand, but you've got a model that works, right? You've got thousands of people all over the world, millions of people all over the world, forming together into groups. And it's working. And I can imagine that for a long time, there was probably a, an element internally of why would we like, why break something that's not broken? Why screw with the, with the recipe? And to your point, this has given an opportunity to say, well, 
we're going to need to react. Like we're going to need to be able to expand and to explore different areas. Otherwise, we we run the risk of becoming less relevant, right? And and I think that's so started pre- to happen, honestly. Um, and and our right. embracing of virtual and online is going to stay forever. So we've had many many organizers who have said to us, "Will this continue after COVID or not?" And the answer is right. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. This is going to continue, and we need to figure out the right path. For if you're hosting a tech event, how do you make that event both amazing in person, but also build the right tools, let's say, for people to come to, you know, join it online and have a vastly better experience than they might have had beforehand? And how do we educate our organizers about the, the footprint that they could potentially have? So a lot of it, by the way, you would think a lot of it is like product and feature set creation. It's actually right. more of it is around communication and education. Um, mm. uh, because you could build additional product feature sets, which we are doing, of course, but if you don't educate organizers on how to example, that we gave before use, use zoom or use other different, what's the, what's the right, um, what's the right tool for what your needs are, um, how to use breakout rooms, how to use icebreakers, how, how, give them case studies of, of how other, other, uh, hobbyist or career events have, have had have had amazing experiences. Bring in organizers of a parenting group and have them teach every other parenting group how how they've done things um, particularly effectively. A lot of it is around communication and best practice sharing, as opposed mm. to you know feature set development. So you know, I imagine a lot of people are going to be listening to this and they're going to be thinking, <clears throat> okay, I run a business or I run a project or this there's something that I'm involved in facilitating and i have a group of entrenched staff members or participants and i want to be able to move us into that new direction and i can i can i'm not going to ask you to get into specifics uh but i can imagine that when you came into meetup you know this is an organization that's been around for a while there's a lot of entrenched culture there's an existing product that's working well um and as part part and parcel of being a CEO is getting people to think different, but in a way that's not dictatorial, right? That you you can encourage people to come together to be able to explore these new areas of innovation and work. How do you go about that? Like, how have you approached that with, with the team there? You know, what practical recommendations would you make to someone who's in a similar position, not necessarily with such a big brand, but in how they go from, okay, we're doing A, and now we want to explore whether we do B and C and D. It doesn't mean we don't we stop doing A, but we want to go into this and and ship, not just come up with ideas and sit in a room and draw on a whiteboard, but how we can actually get to real delivered shipped value. How how do you approach that? Man, I love that question. Okay, so when when I joined uh, Meetup, I remember like day one, I'm standing up there in front of 250 people. And I introduce myself, one person raised their hand and they go, what's your strategy for the company? <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you think I'm like Moses where the Ten Commandments coming down with like, what's our strategy for the company? I have no like, idea what our strategy for the company is. <laughs> right. um, so, so what I did is, um, and I think there's a lot of relevancy to the question, question that you just asked. In, in the first week, we developed a series of like five work streams around the most important key questions that we had to figure out. Who are our customers and what's the, what's the future of XYZ or, 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 or whatever the, the, the topic happened to, happened to have been. And we pulled in 
seven to 10 of the most influential people in the company across the entire cross-section of the business from the most junior person that, that you know, graduated college a year prior as our customer service team, who, by the way, they know a ton because they're constantly the people who are talking to our members and organizers and you want to leverage mm. leverage that group and not just have the senior people obviously make decisions to these cross-functional groups that would settle. And we basically said, you have one week to tackle the problem, to put together what the different, different potential alternative solutions are, to put together mm. what, what the recommended solution is and what the ROI and investments required for each of those. And it was right. energizing. And, and so what we did is we created the very so so the point the, I guess the larger point is CEOs and leaders always struggle with balancing empowering teams and directing teams. When you direct, you over micromanage and people don't have buy-in. And it's a real big problem right. for a leader. When you empower teams, everyone's doing their own thing. There's misalignment. People take forever to get anything done because they're all kind of <laughs> talking and not actually shipping or doing anything. And and finding the right balance. So. What we did is we said, here are the five most important. So we we directed what the most important questions are that we need to solve. We didn't say, what do you think we should solve? We said, these are the five most important things that we need to solve. And then we provided a very structured framework for how they can solve that. And we time boxed it, which is so important. So if you're going to empower, you also have to time box and provide structure. So we, we provide structure and we time boxed it to say, you have one week to figure this out. And then they presented it. And then we said yes or no quickly, and then we started taking action on everything. So I think right. the point is, I think that a lot of leaders at times over-index. They're like, oh, look what Spotify is doing. Every engineer decides to whatever the hell they want to work on, work on it yourself, um, you know, or, or, or other type of kind of religion, again, gate-based perspectives that don't understand the importance of setting people you set people up for much more success when you provide them with the right process and guardrails but you also don't set people up for success if you tell people how they should be doing it and you enable people to figure out the what quickly and the how kind of themselves and that's i i could not agree more with you it's interesting i've, I've experienced something similar when i'm working with clients because <clears throat> as a consultant you have influence but no power right so you can go there with ideas and perspectives and recommendations but fundamentally one of the things i've discovered is if if you know myself and one other person sit down in a vacuum and come up with something come up with a plan or come up with a strategy or whatever it might be it doesn't get the buy-in so having a structured way to start with something that can be ripped apart that can be shredded that can be modified where people can get their skin in the game and then start delivering some quick and easy wins it always works better um yeah john it's far better to have an a minus level or even b plus level strategy and have a level buy-in right. like, oh my god the best a level strategy out there and c level buy-in and right. then like nothing ever happens and it, it's um the key is though not to over index so significantly on the buy-in that yeah. you can't get shit done. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you said, the example of you got to ship, you got to ship, you got to ship. And, yeah. and, the, and and there is a natural fear that I've seen in many organizations, particularly around product teams, just like a fear of dates, a fear of dates, a fear that if you give a date and you miss a date, then something bad is going to happen to you. And, and mm. it's incumbent upon all leaders. And we had that, by the way, at Meetup. We really did. Um, 
And, and it's incumbent upon all leaders to make sure it's clear that we set dates in order to be ambitious. We set dates in order to understand what we could do and when we could do them to prioritize. But if we don't end up not hitting a certain date, that's okay. It's about understanding mm. why we didn't hit a date, not about hitting that date in the first place. And, and yeah, that's just yeah. an important cultural kind of capability, I think, for leaders to exhibit. I, yeah, I agree with you. It remind that reminds me of uh, when I worked at Canonical. Um, we used to work to six month timelines, and um, you know, my team would 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 assign a set of work to that timeline. And uh, there was a natural tendency towards the end of the cycle that if if they didn't have everything done, that they'd be trying to kind of ram it through quickly so they could try and hit the you know got as much of this done as possible. And the one thing I had to reiterate over and over again was. Just work at the the speed that you expect to work at. And if you don't hit everything, that's good data, right? So one person who worked on my team, for example, got about 70% of stuff done on his first cycle. And what we learned, and I said to him, like, what we've learned from this is that we're overestimating what we can fit into this cycle. That's good information. That means that it's something we can resolve and we can fix, right? But I think a lot of people want to save face. Um, one, one other thing as well is, 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 there seems to be a bit of a tension, I think, especially in the tech world, where um, I would say that um, a lot of, like, particularly engineers, um, it's really hard to find really good engineers because there's just there's so many roles out there. You've got companies like Facebook and Google who have amazing benefits packages, so it's been difficult, especially for really small companies, to hire the right, you know, good staff. Um, at a rate that they can afford. So consequently, I think there's been an element in the tech world of um, employees expect that they're going to be really involved and consulted a lot in in yes. the formation of the business, right? This has yes. really blown up, I would say, especially for Google, where they've been struggling in balancing how much influence do your employees have and how much, like, where do you draw the line? Um mm -hmm. Uh, because if you give if you give too much power, the comparison I would make is, it's like stand up comedians always say, you know, if you if you let the audience get control, they'll ruin your show. So you need to give them the right level of control, and you know, you invite the heckles and whatever else, but at some point they're going to shut up. And I'm not suggesting that we tell employees to shut up, but where how do you think about drawing the line in encouraging and enabling your employees but also at some point you got to make a decision and it might not be a decision that they necessarily want to go go ahead with i love it and and and, and you're right every tech company suffers from this um we have degrees of it now we had more of it in the past um i think right. there's a bunch of things i would share number one is that different engineers have different inclinations towards strategy slash debate versus getting things done it's really, if, if you're a get it things done organization or need to move towards that type of a culture during the interview process, it's really important to ascertain through behavioral event interviewing or other types of questions um, around whether or not an engineer loves the, the thinking and the strategy and the debate mm. and the disagreement, and that's where they get their energy, or they get mm. their energy by shipping product and seeing the results of that shipped product in an amazing user user experiences. And man, that's a really, by the way, that is a super insightful comment. <laughs> You're totally right. So, and, yeah. and we know, we know which people in our organization um, got their energy from the debates. And mm. frankly, it's good to debate, 
It's meant to be for a short period of time. And then during that debate that you're having for a short period of time, it's critical to then debate, disagree, and commit. And, and it's up to the leader to be able to say, we are going to spend two days, three days, one day, whatever the time period is, one week, whatever the appropriate time period is to debate. And we are going to commit at a certain date and to cut it off at that particular time. And then to look at which engineers in the organization continue to debate, continue to disagree. And that's just mm. an unhealthy and toxic, potentially, element of a culture. Um, because if you have that, people saying, yeah, I'm going to debate and commit, and they don't commit, that becomes a, a serious problem in your ability to actually kind of ship product. Do you, do you think that, um, you know, millennials get a lot of grief and a lot of um, kind of sneering at because there's kind of a view, oh, well, they're just a bunch of entitled babies. Um, and I, I think that's true in parts, but frankly, I've met a lot of non-millennials who fall into that category. But do you, do you think that people are equipped these days to be able to do that? Because there are a lot of people who can get into the debate and they'll enjoy the debate and they'll strenuously argue their perspective. And then they will either get really annoyed and uh, and mad at the other person on the other side of the debate if they don't agree with them, or they will just not feel comfortable or not be able to say, okay, let's agree to disagree and move on. Do you think mm -hmm. that's a skill that is present with a lot of people? Yeah, I think that increasingly, whether it's how people are parented or whether any other armchair psycholo psychology reason behind it. <laughs> let's, let's fix the world. <laughs> there, there is um, a stronger uh, streak of, of of independence and 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 demand for um, ownership of decisions than there ever has been, and certainly in the mm. U.S. It's always been the case. My comment to it, though, is that that's why let's take engineering. That's why engineering management and leadership is far more important than it ever was because of mm. that specific dynamic. So if you're a strong engineering manager and leader, you can have plenty of individuals on your team who who are the way in which you described in terms of um, the need for, for much more autonomy of decision-making, the need to um, give opinions about and, and, and debate every single topic. And you can have a highly well-functioning productive team if you're a strong manager and leader and know when to facilitate, when not to, when to follow up with people around yeah. um, or behaviors, how to follow up with those people, how to coach people, etc. I would say the need for phenomenal engineering managers and leaders is far, far more important today than it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it's incumbent upon companies to not be penny wise and pound foolish and making sure they have the absolute best managers and leaders specifically within product teams and engineers because of the dynamic that you described. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I, I would actually argue that a lot of those skills are not present, that there are, I mean, there's great people out there who are working uh, and they can deliver amazing results. But in terms of managing or navigating those areas of disagreement or debate, it seems to be something where I think a lot of people are like I I just don't want anything to do with this. Um, I I want it to go away on its own, and, and it frankly, seems like a relatively limited skill set. So, and and not only is it limited actually, but I would I would if you don't mind me saying, I would also say hmm. it's opposite of the typical stereotype of 
oftentimes why uh, an engineer may decide to become an engineer. Of course, there are obviously um, extroverted and engineers who are very focused on honing their communication and leadership skills. But frequently, an engineer will get promoted because they happen to have been a very strong technical engineer. And increasingly, you're seeing almost every organization have the tech lead role, the engineering manager role, and really understanding that that phenomenal engineers are not necessarily phenomenal engineering managers, but they can be really strong engineering tech leads. A less strong engineer from a technical standpoint can be a far, far, far better manager than, than others. And, and it's incumbent upon hmm. CTOs and CIOs to really recognize who to promote and, and what the skill sets are really required to be able to, to get to that level. Because it's, it's sometimes it's antithetical to the quote unquote stereotype among, uh, uh, yeah. among, uh, among developers yeah and that's i think that's a tricky balance right I, i'll always remember working when i was at canonical um we had uh, we were building out i i i worked as i reported into the engineering leadership team and one of the things that we were needing to do was to grow out the the, the number of different departments within that team there was just everything was too consolidated so two rockstar engineers who'd been around ubuntu forever were promoted into leadership positions they both lasted about four months they hated it they're like i don't want to do this this is not my idea of interesting or fun um and i was it was one of the first times i'd ever seen someone intentionally step down from a promotion um but it required them to know that about themselves and i think probably a lot of people get into hot water because they think i think a lot of people wrestle with this where they think you know what I want to be a CEO of a company like Meetup, or I want to be a VP or an SVP. Yeah, I want to get stuff. into that. <laughs> right. Right. And and I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize um, you'll have the satisfaction of kind of hitting that, you know, getting to level four of this particular video game. Um, but you might not be happy if you're not intrinsically motivated by the kinds of challenges and the kind of work that's involved there. I, I do, I'm sure you're the same, David. I know a lot of people who are CEOs who are miserable. <laughs> and they they don't want to step down because they want that recognition and they want i think an element of its control an element of its power but they're not intrinsically motivated by the work and uh, but then they don't want to fail and and that's a tough spot for someone to be in so. yeah i mean i would say two things to that first of all i love everything you just said the first is that it's so important to understand how much of your decision is being made because of ego driven reasons versus because right. it's truly uh, leveraging what your core skill set is. And and too often, oh, uh, I'm managing five people. I want to manage 20 people. And that's an ego thing. I'm not managing anyone. I want to manage people because, yeah. you, frankly, within engineering, you may not even make much more of a higher salary or any higher salary for that matter. Yeah. But, but yeah. it's important to ask oneself the question is, what was my motivation for why I wanted to do that? That's point one. And the other point that I thought of when you said about CEOs, I think that the, the most... Um, the, the stereotypical and I think absolutely true case of CEOs that aren't loving what their jobs are, are founders. Um, so many mm, founders mm. that I know um, love being the founders, love their early days. And they, some of the, many of them continue to be founders when the company gets to 15 people, 20 people, 30 people, 50 people, 100 people. And the kinds of yeah. problems that they're wrestling with and the kind of skill set that they had in running a 100-person organization or 200-person organization is incredibly different than it was three to five people. And yeah, I think that sure. often causes uh, a fair amount of uh, day-to-day unhappiness. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. 
So as we bring this into the finish line, I want to be respectful of your time and get you out of here. Um, I, I think <clears throat> one thing I'd love to just dip into is, uh, is, you know, there are a lot of businesses out there and I include meetup in this and, you know, my wife is the CEO at, at GitHub, as you know, um, and GitHub are an example of this, where you've had this brand, you've had this product that's been around for a long time. People love it. Um, people, um, are familiar with it. Um, but you've always got that kind of, uh, focus on, on reinvention and, and not necessarily reinvention, but always pushing the envelope and moving forward. Mm-hmm. How do you, when you think about the next couple of years, I'm not asking you to give away your, your, your secrets that you're going to be delivering in the next couple of years, but how are you thinking about that with meetup? How are you leading the organization into the next year, year and a half, especially driven by the fact that we've, you know, we have seen some, a big shift towards virtual and yeah. we don't necessarily know how long this pandemic is going to last. Um, uh, and and there's almost certainly going to be probably more of a balance of in-person and virtual moving forward. How are you kind of approaching that? Love it. Okay. So so here has been my, my company rallying cry. My company rallying cry, and it's not just a rallying cry, but it's, it's making its way in product features and strategy, is Meetup is going to be leading the social and community kind of global recovery. Um, yeah. and, and, and we will do so as it is safe to do so in different geographies. So as soon as within the next week or two, we're going to be partnering with a, um, a, a, a major kind of charity, global giving, um, which is okay. really important in terms of all the things they're doing with PPE equipment and, and, and other types of capability and cool. reaching out to country by country and city by city as they open and open up and give them a big challenge and, and give them fin- and, and provide financial benefits to organizers in terms of discounted or free subscriptions um, or other types of types of ways in which they can um, gain benefit. Um, and we're going to go to you know, certain countries like Hong Kong and, and Singapore, and then increasingly Australia and New Zealand um, or Korea and China as it's safe to do so. And then come back, come into the United States and, and work with our organizers and say to our organizers, you are in a position to lead the get back out movement. And it, and, and you need to, in leading that movement, do two things. One is to figure out how to, how to do so in as safe an environment as possible and creating guidelines around how, how do we, um, have events outdoors as opposed to indoors. Um, what precautions do we want to have? But it is very important for communities to get back to in-person, but it's not important for us just to say, do it. It's important for us to really help people in figuring out the next steps of how they ultimately ultimately do it. So that's a, a big area of focus for our company and I think can unlock um, huge opportunities as people realize the the beauty of getting getting back together kind of in person again. Yeah. Fantastic. That's, that's well, kind what of a, is, is that one or did you, do you have more? Can you give us some more juice? <laughs> sure. Sure. I'll give you the other one for me is where I don't believe we've done as good and a good enough job is in connecting organizers with other organizers, either in the same geography or in topics that they're passionate about. So what, what I mean oh, by I that is there are 
um, probably 300 different cancer support groups. So how do we get the organizers of each of the cancer support groups to get together virtually to, and, and help to share best practices with each other, help to mentor each other? When a new organizer of a cancer support group crops up in St. Louis, how does that large group of organizers embrace that person and, and, and make the learning curve for how to learn how to handle such a challenging type topic um, mm. as easy as possible? If you're a new hiking group, what are some best practices that you can learn from others? So where I want to really move our company and, and build feature sets around is that if you become a meetup organizer, you now have access to the absolute best practices of so many other groups that have done it, failed, done, failed, done, failed, and failed and made tons of different mistakes. And how could you, how could we decrease that learning curve as quickly as possible so that you could right. be best enabled to have to build amazing experiences for all of your members? That's, that's kind of the big second Love thing that we're focused on. That's awesome. Well, you know, David, I, I, as you know, I, I love the work that you do. I, I really respect you as a leader. <clears throat> I know your team does as well from talking to the folks at Meetup. Um, I think you're doing a great job. And thank you for coming on. Like one of the things I admire about you, and I mentioned this earlier on, is you're just you're very open. Um, and, and I love how you shared a lot in this, not just about, sure, what the company is doing, but also your approach and your philosophy to this. So thank you for coming on. Jono, thank you for having me. Loved it.